Hi, welcome to the 10th Womanthology podcast. My name is Fiona Tatton and I'll be your host. Womanthology is a digital magazine and professional community powered by female energy and ingenuity. We champion equal recognition and reward for everyone, sharing opportunities, ideas, and a deep pool of collective wisdom, supporting each other to be unstoppable. The theme of the show today is Better Together. We are considering how people are pulling together during COVID-19 and now a second lockdown. I'm going to be speaking with organisational and social change expert, Dr. Jody Akid, who helps companies take care of their staff's happiness and well-being. We also meet Liz Tucker, Chair of Women in Film and TV. She's campaigning in support of her members who have been excluded from government support. We will also be hearing from Inesh Santos, Womanthology's Associate Editor, who is going to be talking us through the written stories in the new issue. Welcome to the Womanthology podcast, Dr. Jodie Akehead. How are you doing, Jodie? I'm good, actually. I'm having a I'm having a good day. I think things feeling a bit positive for me at the moment. Things related to what happened in America, for example, and yeah, things are all right. Things are good. Well, I am glad to hear it. Now, just to give people a bit of background, you are an organisational and social change expert, and I love your your other job title, your main job title, which is designer of happiness, which I can't wait to get into. So Jody, please, can you tell us about your career and your educational background to date? Yes, yeah, so I'm a psychologist and I've got a PhD um, and a master's and some other bits, but effectively I started working on the science of well-being when I joined the New Economics Foundation um, and worked with my colleague Nick Marks there. And we were really thinking about what would society, what would policy, what would economics look like if well-being was its ultimate goal? Um, and so we did a lot of digging around in the research about well-being and the drivers of it, the experience of it, and then try to influence how we measure it, how we design policies for it, how we think about economics in relation to it. And after several, quite a lot of years of doing that, we started looking at workplaces because we recognized that a lot of the adult population (laughs) were in work so a sweet intervention point was workplaces if we could get workplaces more um, supportive of adult well-being we could sort of shift the population distribution to the right you know in terms of happier more fulfilling lives so that became our playground if you like workplaces and looking at positive employee experience and the drivers of a good working life and um, and alongside that I did quite a lot of work on participatory social change processes working with communities working with fishermen indigenous communities young people volunteers about how change happens so most of what I do in my current role is supporting organizations um, to use the data to make positive change happen in their cultures When I was working back at the New Economics Foundation, we were doing a piece of work um, for the government on, okay, so we know we've got to eat five fruit and vegetables for our bodies. 
Um, but what would the five fruit and vegetable equivalent be for the mind if we were going to nurture that? So we did. A, I did a lot of work with scientists, and they commissioned eighty odd reviews, it's like special reviews, to look at this. And we distilled the evidence into five things that people can do to look after their mental health and well-being. Because at the time, mental health, well-being, happiness—it was all a bit nebulous. People couldn't grasp it. So we looked at what what people had to do. You know how they had to improve. Their, relation, their way of being, I suppose. And it was around relationships, connect, be active, keep learning, take notice and give. And when we took this into the workplaces, we ran loads of statistical analysis um, and research around what were the five drivers of happiness at work. So we used a similar model. So if you're thinking about your having a positive experience with work, you probably need to look and think about how good are my relationships in my team to connect? What's the sort of fairness and respect? So one of them is to be fair. How do we relate to one another? Diversity, inclusion, things like that that you've mentioned. The third one is empower. Because what you said, we have autonomy in our work. Do we have control over what we do when we do it? Fourth is challenge, which is that stretch. We go to work to be stretched and challenged. And the third, and the final one is inspire. To what extent do we feel proud to work where we are and feel that sense of inspiration? So those five drivers um, influence happiness at work. So they're the ones that we ask questions about and prompt people to reflect on. And very soon we've got Friday One coming out, which is the opportunity for individuals to, for free to just run that profile so they can get a sense of where their strengths are in terms of their experience of work and where their opportunities are to improve. Well, I think we need to encourage everybody. So if we can get the details of that when that happens, that'd be wonderful. And we will uh, encourage everybody to have a look. And in your designer of happiness role, what sort of things would you be, would you be doing on a day-to-day basis? Normally consulting into a senior executive leadership group to discuss their data on the Friday Pulse platform and what that means for the actions they take forward. So I do a lot of that. We're also built the tool to be a team building tool. So effectively, we're trying to democratize the workplace and put the data, put the knowledge in the power of individuals and teams. So it's not just held by central HR functions or by senior leadership teams. Everyone gets to see how the organization is faring and everyone gets to see how their team is doing. So we're trying to get teams to be having conversations to be more self-aware about how they're feeling and the things that make their weeks go well and don't go well so I spend quite a lot of time building and baking I suppose the science and which is this burgeoning area of studies coming out all the time into like tips and things that teams can use and apply and adopt so if they've got a low score for example in work-life balance or in feedback or in sense of accomplishment and what kind of things can they do to improve improve that in the way that they work together either sort of as individuals or as a team and also sort of during periods like this in covid and crisis where generally we're feeling not so good generally resilience is low so what do you do to sort of maintain sustain that positive energy vitality you know feeling that things are more better than they are bad so that it's not just about the culture it's about how we sort of raise our levels of positivity as well okay so lots of work in lots of different types of companies yes we've you've neatly segued into covid which is uh super super helpful for us to 
to go there. So yeah, so in terms of impacting on people's individual and collective happiness at work, how, how would you say that that's going? So we've been tracking our data because what we have is we have weekly data where we ask people how happy were you at we, uh, this week at work on a one to five scale. So what we've got is trend data. You know, we've got, we can see how people were doing pre-COVID, you know, all the users of the Friday platform. Then we can see what happened when COVID hit. We can see how long it takes them to bounce back. And so we can see what the general trend is, which is like people to be down six or seven points in a hundred point scale when the first lockdown was increased and they kind of trended a little bit up. And then we've got the second wave and people's happiness is dropping again. And then I'm able to work with teams and with executive teams to coach them and for them to come up with solutions to kind of get themselves out of where they are. And those trajectories are just very different. You know, it depends on a lot on how many conversations they're having within an organization. Are they talking about how they're feeling? Are they stopping each week and saying what, what's going well, what's not, and how might we, we adapt? And I think that, that it really has called for that. You know, the situation's been changing all the time. Our emotions have been totally up and down. Our coping has been up and down. We've reached limits that perhaps we haven't had to face before. And to having those conversations with those companies and teams that are doing well recognise their limits as a sign of health. They recognize that they cannot keep going on coping as they are, but what they have to do is reorganize some things. And that might be what they expect of themselves, what they expect of other people. It might be, you know, different work boundaries, different digital boundaries. It might be practicing self-care a lot more. Um, it might be investing more in the sorts of conversations they're having as teams. So, yeah, they're meeting up, but are they actually having good quality conversations breaking it down and having a lot more one-to-one -one conversations because people don't do well on big Zoom meetings and a lot of managers have gone and just done loads more one-to-ones, you know, and actually that's improving things like sense of appreciation because they're in a conversation with their managers and suddenly their managers understand a little bit more about who they are, who's showing up to work, the challenges they're facing in and out of work the sorts of things they're particularly bothered about that they particularly want to improve. And then that allows the manager to kind of, that awareness, that knowledge, basically enables the manager to be a better manager, you know, and recognize them for things that they know they found difficult, that they've done well, or recognize and encourage the things that they know they want to be working on, you know, more of and want to be developing in. So yeah, there's lots and lots of stuff going on and because nothing's set. You know, all the boundaries have shifted, all the, all, everything has changed. So nothing is set. And so there are real opportunities to change things when life has just nailed you effectively. But it's the, it's the difference between those teams and those managers that are able to, to work with that and those that are still really trying to do everything that they did before in exactly the same way. And now we're like month 11 in 2020 and that strategy isn't sort of sustainable. So sometimes my role is, you know, is coaching people to notice that and keep pointing it out to them. <laughs> and there, then there's the aha moment, you know, and quite often for those teams and those individuals that just want to keep going, 
it's just if you can just get them change one thing make some small alteration and then the diff they see the difference is is quite significant and then that kind of gives them the encouragement to try it and adjust something else and see how that makes them feel I suppose it's for, for managers there's never been a harder time really and in terms of if you're not having a very good day as a manager but you've got this team of people who are reliant on you and you can't go well it's really awful I feel really terrible so that kind of sense of buoyancy that you would inherently try and have as a manager you, you really have to work hard at that I'd imagine yeah I think so and I think I, I just think there's different approaches. I mean, you've got more and more trends now coming through around authentic leadership, haven't you, where you actually just, you show up and you go, yeah, this is tough today. You know, I'm feeling it too. So I think there are people that are taking that approach a lot more and that feels more authentic to the employee. I, I've worked a lot with employees and, and tried to see the organisation from their perspective and actually one thing I always say to managers and senior execs that take on using Friday Pulse is nobody expects you to fix this. Like They don't actually expect that you're going to come and fix their problems. They may need to vent. They may need to have a space where they feel and they can express their negativity or whatever they're not necessarily expecting that you are going to fix everything for them so if we can kind of engender that sense of collective responsibility you know our experiences of work are contingent on what we do as individuals how we interact with we with one another no manager is going to be able to fix all of that I mean obviously they're important they're very important but it's not all on their shoulders um so I think Yes, you can. And I, do, I mean, I do, I have listened to podcasts with leaders, particularly women actually, who are like holding it together all day and then going home and collapsing in tears. Because they can't, you know, you can't hold the weight of it, particularly if they're having to make difficult decisions about redundancies and things like that. But, but then they're getting on a podcast and they're saying, this is how it really is. You know, I didn't show up and show it then, but I am being brave and courageous enough to say, actually, guys, this is how it really is. Like, we feel this stuff. Like, this is, this is really hard. This is unprecedented. And I also think HR people are finding it very difficult. And, um, you know, it's generalisation to say, but a lot of them are female, not always. But, yeah, because a lot of companies are going through, you know, furloughing processes or redundancy processes. People are having a difficult time in their home lives as well as at work, like, because everything's uncertain, it's just sort of the way of anxiety and sort of low mood that people have experienced through these periods of lockdown. And then they bring that into the workplace. And then in the workplace, they're met with more difficult news. And I feel that HR felt quite squeezed in some of this. And of course, they're the people whose historically, it's their job to look after everyone. You know? Yeah, it's that nurturing and, and, nurturing and support side of things. So what else should companies be trying to do, would you say? I do think it all starts with having good conversations. I mean, that's partly why we built the platform to provide the data back to teams so that they're talking and they're having conversations. And I think that if you can facilitate that, what you're really trying to facilitate is, a, is self-awareness and self-regulation, but at the collective level. Because you don't, what we want to move away from is people evangelizing or, or saying terrible things about where they work 
and sharing their frustrations with their loved ones or their friends outside of work who can't really help them make it any better. You know, they can be a sounding board and they can listen, they can empathize. But if we can find ways to constructively express our frustrations and our concerns with our teammates, you know, that's, that's a whole new level of workplace um, conversation, intelligence, awareness. Um, so, and I think, I think in some ways COVID has helped our cause in the sense that that work separation, that this is me with my professional hat on, this is me at home, this is me all buoyant and happy and this is me at home, <laughs> quite frustrated, quite upset, quite um, despondent maybe. Like there's been this kind of like, you know, merging of the two that's been necessitated by this like working from home on a massive scale. And, and so I think it has kind of helped people to, it's necessitated that people have more honest conversations, I suppose. Um, and to empathize a bit more with each other. It's a bit, when you're going through a collective crisis like this, it becomes very apparent to, to people that we may all be, experiencing the same external event which is covid but our individual pathways through it are so different and they're so contingent on our own personal histories our own set of resources our own networks of support um, and when you're up and when you're down can be it doesn't necessarily equate with the particular item in the news or whatever it's a whole combination and a complex interaction of things that basically denote whether we're feeling good or not and I think the people have recognized a bit that you know you, there's no judgment here you know you have a bad day you have a bad day you're having a bad day because things are hard like we don't need to explain that we need to explain our emotions but if we can find ways of labeling them if we can find ways of, of giving them a name and talking around them and and finding common points of reference like in workplaces, in will play. And I mean, that, that to me, we just totally feel totally different. And is it almost giving it, so it's giving permission to say, I'm having a bad day or I'm having a bad day, whatever, and to kind of acknowledge that we're all going to be up and down at different times as well, perhaps. Yeah, and then we do a lot of amplifying the positive through the tool. Like, it's very easy. I mean, what we feel is partly dictated by what we attend to. Um, and attention, particularly in in like crises like this you know your attention is to all the negative you know and all the the bad things that happen and you're on high alert for that because we're in a state of high arousal with adrenaline going through our system because we're in a crisis might be a prolonged chronic crisis but it is still one so we are evolutionary i mean we're trained to tune into the negative so the tool kind of really encourages people to go well actually let's celebrate what went well last week who do we want to thank for support this week? So there's kind of public expressions of gratitude, there's public celebrations sort of kind of help, help to raise levels of positivity and then people's energy, actually, and then their motivation. And so we do a lot of that through the tool as well, and like team-building questions so people just have something fun to connect with each other, which is quite important when everyone's working remotely and you lose that, like, coffee chat by or the water cooler chat or you know the serendipitous bump into the corridor and share something um moment it's it is 
we have to be more intentional about it when we're all working from home. So it's like what some people might call an artificial conversation. You have to create those. And so we do that by asking, you know, silly questions. And some of them aren't silly, but like it might be, where do you like to holiday, beach or mountain? You know, what podcast are you listening to recently and enjoying? Um, you know, through to what was the best present you got as a child. Just things that, you know, basically your annual team building exercise broken down into 52 weeks a year. So there's just something each week for people to just hold on to and go, oh, right, you're listening to that too. Or, oh, that's funny because that reminds me of when I was a child. And it's just those bits of, you know, us as humans rather than just jumping on a Zoom call to get some work done. <laughs> and then there's a lot that people, People are doing around self-care, around work-life balance and things like that, wellness days so people can take a day off when they need um, need it to look after their well-being. And our company's gone moved to a four-day week and I've got lots of clients interested in that. What does that look like? Because we're not in a sprint now, we're in a marathon. So how do we retain our energy? We've shifted to a four-day week. Other companies are interested in that. Education and training on burnout. And then just the positive stuff, like using Christmas budget, party budgets to send out goodie bags, send out gifts to people in the post, make sure people are taking their holiday. There's all those sorts of things as well. Or even just getting outside. So like today, where it's going dark now. I've not had my daily walk today. I've been sat on Zoom for most of the day. But actually, I know after this, I am going to go, even, even though it's going dark, I'm going to have just a little wander around the block just to get a bit of fresh air but it's so easy when you're just so you're busy you're wrapped up in work and just to ignore that and to to not do the self-care behaviors and the the worst thing is is that the more stress we get the less good we are at making decisions around self-care so it's like a, a horrible spiral the more tired we are the more the bad, the worst decisions we make. So, for example, instead of getting up and going for a walk outside, which is a restorative break, which has loads of well-being benefits, shifts our energy physically, which shifts our energy mentally, blah blah blah. We have to peel ourselves away. So, what we often, if when we're feeling really stressed, we won't peel ourselves away and do the kind of restorative breaks. We'll just switch to another screen and follow the football read an article or we'll feel bad about not working because of that extensive things to do list that we'll switch from work tasks to sorting out the mortgage or our rent so we're switching from one cognitive task to another cognitive task we're not giving our brains that downtime so yeah I mean we have we have a lot of freedom in our companies and I'm really promoting with clients at the moment. It's like if people need to go outside and preferably go out in daylight hours, let them take that half an hour in the middle of the day because at the moment they're stuck in their houses. Otherwise they won't leave day in, day out. <laughs> or they won't get outside when it's light, you know, and that's that's not very good. And also just, the you know, spending time in nature, particularly at weekends and stuff, is so restorative because it, counter stress i particularly like forests and tall trees i'm happy i also live by the the sea but when i'm feeling overwhelmed there's something about going and standing in a forest amongst trees way older and wiser and um and it's a groundingness it's a sense of perspective it's an awe which is another positive emotion you know that awe which makes us 
it does make us dream bigger because it's that kind of it inspires us and that energizes us to come back to work in a different way and approach it in a different way so yes nature and you know there's all sorts of habits that happy people have that people that are less happy have so you know i mean it's all on average but the research tells us all sorts of things so yes from positivity to meditation to focusing on being in the moment savoring the moment being optimistic but then it's just like the behaviors as well being outside getting into nature and treating people with kindness and respect spending money on experiences rather than things giving quite a lot of time to relationships prioritizing sleep those sorts of behaviors sort of all add up to to something measurable this is really helping. Thank you, Jodie. I'm feeling better already after speaking with you. <laughs> and I'm seeing a lot of people with pet pictures as well. On I'm seeing a lot of like, this is my cat on LinkedIn type things. Or this is my cat sat on my keyboard or this is it. Because they, they just, oh, cats and dogs, they're quite good, aren't they, in these circumstances? <laughs> yeah, I was just talking to a client today and um, she went and got her dog. <laughs> she was like, it's new and I can hear it crying. So I was like, oh, that's another new dog to chat up. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just like novelty. It's bringing novelty in, isn't it? It's a new connection with another living thing, a living being. We're now, some of our worlds have become so small. Uh, social worlds have become so small. And it's a real life interaction that's not on screen. <laughs> <laughs> but we will get through, Jedi. We will absolutely get through. So tell me what is coming up for you. Um, what are you looking forward to? What are you excited about? Um, it's a good question. I mean, I suppose it's a, it's a very um, privileged thing to say, but I, it's been an interesting year in terms of supporting organisations um, because no one had anticipated this. It's thrown everything into disarray. And so it's like I'm very interested and kind of excited to see how things fall and how things land and how things reform. I don't think things are going to reform in exactly the same way. So, for example, the amount of office working we do versus remote working. When COVID, we got a vaccine and COVID's gone away, do I think that everyone's going to go rush back to the office? I think people will be keen to be in the office some of the time. But I think that there'll be new boundaries renegotiated on, on that. Um, I think that's interesting, that's exciting. Seeing what people do about culture, I think is going to be interesting. I think that it's kind of been a, let's get through it, let's get through it, let's go through it. And then when crises come to an end, whether they're personal or societal, there's sort of a reordering and a resettling of priorities that often come out of it, which you don't, always do when you're in it because you're just in survival you just you don't look up you're kind of getting by hour to hour day to day week to week and certainly in COVID it's been such a weird period because no one's even had anything to look forward to so I think people have stopped looking up because that was just a dis disappointing outlook <laughs> so again you just focus on the here and now but when you're through it we're through it. I think it's going to be interesting. I think we'll hopefully there'll be a period of us thinking, right, what does work look like now? How do we organize our lives now? What did we miss in COVID? What did we 
introduced out of necessity of invention in COVID that we're going to keep and we're going to hold on to. Um, so I think those conversations will be really interesting. And there is opportunity there. There's opportunity to reorganize our lives and our, our relationship to work um, and our relationship to our colleagues that didn't exist at the beginning of 2020. So it's that kind of build back better, but it's also, it's not, it's not putting pressure on the build back better either. Cause I think there's a danger of doing that as well. Isn't there? Where everything's got to come out of this better. And it's, it's just, I think it's just giving ourselves permission at the moment just to get through and it's okay not to be okay. Maybe. I think that's definitely the case. And I also think, I mean, I'm on the downside about not stuff I'm not looking forward to, but is on my radar is instances of um, ill health and burnout, not COVID related, but just related to, existing through the pandemic because quite often when you've had a psychological trauma it comes out later physically because what you've done is you've basically borrowed when you're in fight or flight response which might look like just trying to carry on as normal or you know create the biggest things to do list in the world ever and just try and you know just keep going at it I think you, what happens is you rely on adrenaline. The body then borrows vitamins, emergency borrows minerals as well, like zinc and other things. You don't necessarily have any conscious awareness that this is happening, but to enable you to stay at some kind of level of focus and performance through sustained stress, that's what the body does. But when the body doesn't need to do that anymore, because the crisis has gone away or the threat's gone away or the psychological trauma gets further into the, into the past and isn't so immediate, we can kind of collapse a bit because we're not running on that same energy and then we suddenly realise how tired we are. And what I'm noticing is people are taking breaks but they're only a couple of days back into being at work and they're really feeling exhausted again. And they're like, how am I feeling this exhausted? I just had a week off. So our resilience is lower and that takes time to rebuild. That takes a lot of R&R, a lot of restoration. Um, It doesn't come back. It can from short stresses. It's the sustained stress that has the wear and tear on our bodies. So, yeah, I don't think it's going to be like build that better instantly. I just hope we take we seize the opportunities when they're there to think, let's just not go back to everything as it was before. Take the good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and learn, you know, what have we learned, you know, from this? Absolutely. Well, Jodie, thank you, thank you so much. I could literally talk to you all day, but I won't because we're both going to burn out if we do that, so we won't do that. So could I just say thank you so much for your time and your thoughts? And will you keep in touch with us? And can we uh, perhaps speak with you again in the future? Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? Like in a year's time, see what's going on. Yeah, well, we're we're all feeling fantastic. (laughs) But Jodie, thank you so much. Hello everyone, my name is Ines Santos, I am the Associate Editor for Womanfology and here I am to bring you an overview of our new issue, Better Together. You will read about 
Alessandra Alonso, founder and managing director of Women in Travel, who explains how her community interest company is supporting women who work in the travel sector during the pandemic through mentoring. She also tells us about the C-Session that is taking place at the moment. Find out about her crowdfunding campaign and how you can support that too. Also, Amanda Thompson, founder and CEO of Thompson & Scott, tells us how her wine company is thriving despite the multiple challenges in the hospitality sector. Amanda explains how she's determined to make the wine industry more inclusive. Deputy Chief Executive of the Institute of Physics, Rachel Youngman, tells us how the Institute is seeking to increase the diversity of young people who go into physics with their new Limitless campaign. Tash Wilcox, co-organizer of Design Education, head of learning design at Snook and freelancer, talks about her career to date and her passion for learning and design. She also tells us about the lack of diversity in the digital sector and how she launched the campaign, hashtag Ace at any age, to show that women should not be put on the shelf once they reach a certain age. She says there is no shelf. Anika Hicks, founder of Excluded UK, talks about the grassroots non-profit organization she set up with two colleagues when her marketing company lost 95% of its monthly income overnight at the start of the pandemic. Excluded UK is committed to providing personal, business and career support to those facing hardship as a result of lack of entitlement to government support during the pandemic. Fung Ung is founder of social impact startup Matchable, a digital platform matching companies and individuals with game-changing opportunities to work with exciting non-profits and startups on innovative projects. She shares her story with us and talks about the power of connections. Finally, Chantelle Nicholson is chef owner of Treadwell's restaurant and, most recently, she has just overseen the opening of All's Well, a new shop and takeaway in Hackney, serving hyper-seasonal, sustainable cooking and celebrating British produce, organic wines and zero-waste cooking. She brought all this together with her team against the backdrop of the pandemic and the second national lockdown in England. Do check out our website www.womanphology.co.uk to read the full stories. And that is all for me. Okay, so a uh, pleasure to be with Liz Tucker from Women in Film and Television. How are you doing, Liz? Very well, well it's lovely to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, thank you. Well, it's a pleasure. Looking forward to chatting with you. So uh, could we kick off by finding out about your career to date? Absolutely. I started my career working, um, in fact, as a radio producer and then moved across to Tomorrow's World, where I spent my time in, st in, in studios grappling with robots, with experiments that didn't always work, as I'm sure anybody that watched the live 
Morris World will remember. I remember my, my, one of my kind of first Morris World stories was about a shaving foam that was made from cheese whey, and you had to you had to whisk it up in a in a Kenwood food mixer, and then it turned into foam. But of course, the props department couldn't get a strong enough mixer. And I just remember the producer of the program saying to me, "I want your assurance, Liz, that this is going to work on the day." And I said, "Well, I can't, I, I can't make that assurance if, if we don't get the right mixer." So with an hour to go, I had to get in the car, drive to a friend's house in Fulham, pick up a spare Kenwood mixer, drive back to the studio, um, you know, with minutes to spare. And I thought, I cannot get believe I'm getting so stressed about something which ultimately is so unimportant. But anyway. The, uh, the item worked and the shaving foam worked. So that was, so that was, so that was a, a, a good start. Um, and then from then I went on to work, work on a variety of shows, including shows like QED, Horizon, Documentary, History, and sort of Contemporary Factual for uh, many of the world's leading broadcasters. So I think I've made programmes that have broadcast in just over 100 countries now. Wow. And I'm a huge fan of many of those programmes. So... The ones that I know that I've seen, so I'm sure there's probably other ones that I don't realise that I've seen, but I'm a huge fan of those. And you're now chair of Women in Film and Television UK. Could you tell us a bit about the organisation and how you got involved? Yeah, Women in Film and Television represents all the women working in film and TV in the UK. We're a membership organisation and we put on a regular programme of events which people can come to. We run a major awards event and then we lobby for women across the industry because clearly as we know there are still many areas of the industry where women are unrepresented and I got involved really because it was quite clear to me in my career you could see in certain areas in the craft departments camera and sound loads of areas of post-production there were so few women and indeed in directing too so I felt that, that was something really important for us to develop so that's how I got involved with the organisation. Uh-huh. And in terms of gender balance in film and television, where, where are we up to, broadly speaking? Well, I think we've got areas where we're clearly doing really badly. I mean, we just have to look at the fact that only one woman has ever won an Oscar for Best Directing. Um, I think the year before last, there was only one woman working on a major feature film in the, in the camera department. I mean, these are terrible statistics. And still, if you look across... Uh, documentaries, directing, women are minority. And once you get into the post-production houses, and I mean things like dubbing, mixing, uh, video editing, you, you find then the stats are even worse. So there is a huge, huge amount for us still to do. I mean, no one will be happier than me when women in film and television can say, we're accomplished, we can close down. But I think we're a fair way off that at the moment. And so in your opinion, what needs to change in the industry? Well, I think it's really, I mean, it's interesting, actually, because I'm going to be setting up a committee looking at what we can do to get more directors into factual documentary. And I think what's terribly easy is for people just to use the people that they've used before. And of course, if the people they used before were all men, that doesn't help you broaden your reach. So I think it's about the broadcasters being prepared to take greater risks and and. and to a degree, holding their feet to the fire, saying this is something that's really important. And to be fair to the broadcasters, I think there is a realisation from them that they know things need to change. But I think our industry is quite a casual industry and there's a lot of you know hiring friends and friends of friends. And I think we just have to be really aware of those kind of hiring practices, that that doesn't necessarily create a diverse workforce. 
so I think that's one aspect. And again, you know, something else that perhaps the broadcasters could could encourage. There's still very few indies that are run by women. You know, literally, there's, there's a handful. BBC commissioning editor was saying to me that when she moved into commissioning at Channel 4, she was shocked by how many men were coming through the door because she'd been used to working with more women. So I think I think that's really important. And it may well come down to the, the, the broadcasters having to have absolute targets that we have to have you know, X number of women directing on, on, on these shows because undoubtedly the talent is out there. But, you know, people can't get to develop their careers if they don't get that first chance. And obviously, once you've had your first chance, it's easier to get your second chance. So we absolutely, you know, broadcasting means, you know, broad. It means hearing from everybody's voices. The, the, particularly our kind of public service broadcasters should be reflecting the voices of all of us. Um, and at the moment, if you've only got directors, you've only, if you've only got, you know, certain areas where women are employed, that's not happening. Um, and in terms of social mobility and things like that, so I know quite often where there's internships involved and things like that, it's the people that can afford to work on an internship that quite often historically have got internships for things. Yes, well, we don't support internships at all. I mean, sometimes the WFTV people ask us for internships and we don't have, because I think everybody should should be paid, you know, at least the London living wage and really above that. So certainly in our office, we, we, we pay well above that for all jobs. And I think that, you know, where, where you've got these training roles, people have to be paid a reasonable amount of money. It, it's simply unfair. And you're quite right, social mobility is a big issue. Um, and I've introduced tough new diversity targets in the last year for our mentoring schemes, for example. And social mobility is part of that because that's a, that's a huge in, a huge issue for our industry and it's partly as you, as you point out things like internships which may help you get into a job but also a lot of our industry is short-term contracts which is terribly unstable and it means people are you know financially in quite a kind of vulnerable position in between contracts all of which doesn't help social mobility and can can we keep in touch with you about these issues liz would that be okay of course yeah because we we care about them a lot and it's incredibly important yeah. moving on to covid19 so how has that impacted you mentioned the the short-term contracts and the mm. freelancing how has covid19 impacted your members well it's been devastating actually because so many of them um come from a you know a, a freelance background i think we did the first survey and over 90 percent of our members had lost all their, had, had lost all or some of their income so that's wow. horrific. Um, and then when we started to look, as you, you'll be aware, the government has two support schemes for uh, freelancers and self-employed. Two-thirds of, you know, the two-thirds of our membership were unable to claim. So that there's a large group of people. The, the best the figures, which I've seen from the Excluded UK campaign group, which I think they've done a really good job and they're very accurate, is there are three million people who've been left out in the cold. And that's that's for a variety of reasons. One, if you if you're newly freelance, you don't qualify. If you if you if more than fifty percent of your earnings come from a non self employed source, you, you're then ruled out. If you've gone from pay ye contract to pay ye contract, which of course lots of people do, you're also ruled out. Um, and if you're a company director and you've earned profits of more than fifty thousand, you don't earn anything. There are a couple of other categories too. So the result of all of this means that we've got three million people who have been left with nothing. And I don't know how they're supposed to live. You know, this has been going on now since March. It now looks like we're probably going to be at least a year 
And many of these people aren't eligible for universal credit either. We've, we've had people who've been turned down from universal credit because the money they're saving to pay their tax bill next year basically pushes them above the universal credit limit. So they haven't been able to qualify for universal credit. Well, and I think when I've heard questions asked about this in Parliament, the response has been, but a lot of people have had help and our scheme's really generous and lots of people have had help, but that obviously doesn't help the people who have had no help. Well, we found it quite frustrating, actually, and we've been working on this, Beck too have been working on this, Directors UK, we've been working closely with Excluded UK, and it does feel like the government's just ignoring the question because basically they ignore the three million. They just say we put in the support schemes for the self-employed, which is which. Yes, it, it has value for those self-employed people who are able to qualify, but there's a very large number that are not. And excluded UK are now reporting that there have been several suicides, which you know is really, really, you know, horrific. And you know, I hope to God that there are no more. But it really worries me, with you know, months and months of this. I mean, people can't live without any income for years and years. It's just desperately unfair. And, you know, self-employed are such an important part of the UK economy. It does feel that they've been left out to dry. And obviously our concern is also the new tax changes, which it appears may may rise sharply for the self-employed. So potentially self-employed may have had no income at all for a year, and then they're going to be hit with these new... Um, higher tax rates, which would be devastating for them. But, you know, I, we don't get any response from the Treasury. We do get responses when we write to DCMS, but we're all struggling to get any response from the Treasury, and we're just getting complete pushback. Well, that's just terrible. Sorry, I've just gone really quiet, Liz, because that's just so awful. Tell us about your Forgotten Freelancers campaign, then. So we've really been tr- trying to highlight this both amongst in- industry groups on within the various industry press and beyond because we think it's actually we think there are a number of simple things that you could do which actually would include the, would include these uh, three million freelancers we've sent the information to the government and we've had absolutely kind of no response at all so what we would do is we, we'd remove the the 50 percent requirement that your earnings must be at least 50 percent freelance because i don't see why that matters for, for people who are on pay-y contracts, we're just saying, look at their tax bill for last year. That's, that's The HMRC has that information. You can see how much they've earned and base some sort of furloughing on that. We're asking for the limit to be removed for the 50,000 for company directors because there's no limit for people who are employed. We're asking for the newly self-employed to be able to put in tax returns for the most recent year. And we're asking for those who've been on maternity leave for a year where they would have been on maternity leave for that to be taken out of the income tax calculations. There's a couple of other things we've suggested at all, but they're all quite simple. And we're, you know, convinced would take a lot of these a lot of these people out of the extreme situation they found in. But you know, Rishi Sunak has said he, he queries those figures. But even you know, the government's own Treasury Committee has suggested there's a large number of people who've been left without any support. So it's a huge worry because I really just don't know what's going to happen to them. It's it's horrific and it's just story after story. And, you know, next Monday it'll be 100 days since we started running our Forgotten Freelancers campaign. I mean, it's heartbreaking. Well, we're we're right behind you, Liz. So whatever we can do, then um, we're, we're right here. So, sorry. Normally, at this point, it would be it would be quite upbeat, and I'd be asking, "What are you? What's coming up for you? What are you looking forward to?" But you've got 
loads of hard work ahead, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, on the positive, we've, we've, we've launched new mentoring schemes this year for mid-level career women in the industry because we've, been, because we've been able to raise more money for sponsorship. So whereas previously we had uh, our English scheme and then we had a scheme in Northern Ireland that was sponsored for the first time by Netflix uh, last year. Netflix have very kindly agreed to also provide sponsorship now for a scheme in Wales and Scotland. Um, and these are for mid-level career women. So that's, that's really positive and that will help people and help them make the right connections and develop their careers. We've got some fantastic mentors. We've got Fiona Campbell, who's the BBC Three controller, Danny Horan, who's head of Factual at Channel 4. Uh, we've, we've had, you know, the, 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 the writer of Derry Girls, Lisa McGee. So really great people. And we've really seen the mentees' careers develop from that. So that's, so that's fantastic. We're about to launch the Pat Llewellyn Bursary Fund, and that provides £10,000 bursaries for people with factually-based or entertainment-based TV proposals to help them uh, fund that development work, because that development work can often be really, really, really expensive. So that's all positive. And then next year, COVID-19 permitting, we've got our annual awards, which is always a big shindig. It's one of the most popular awards events in in the calendar. I kid you not. Last year, the ticket sold out in 90 seconds. 90 seconds? Nine zero seconds? If you you want to see what it's like, if you you go to our website on the awards page and watch the the five-minute video from last year, I think you'll you'll get an idea. Sandy Jopstick's a fantastic host, and we had brilliant people from... Uh, Helena Bonham Carter, Steve Cougar. It was just fantastic, just a fantastic day. So that's all really positive. Um, but obviously, we are continuing to push for greater equality for women, as I say, across the industry. And so, coming up fast for me is this committee that, that I'll be chairing, looking at how we can get more female directors into documentary and draw, into documentary, because that is, it is an area which remains of real concern to us. Uh huh. Well, Liz, it strikes me that we're really lucky to have you on the case. So if it's okay, we will keep speaking with you and we'll keep, we want to keep this, this, these issues right at the front of what's going on so we can hopefully make some, some positive change. So we're, we're right beside you. Right. Well, thank you. Lovely talking to you. Sadly, that's all we have time for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember... If you want to support what we do, then share the link for the show on social media and also subscribe. Your feedback is really important, so please do rate and review the show in your podcast app. That's all for now, but join us in the final episode of 2020, where we'll be turning our written issue and podcast over to you. More details to be revealed soon. For now, take care and stay safe.